the rabbit down the rabbit hole, and while she's in Wonderland, the Red Queen says to her, Here, my dear, we must run as fast as we can to stay in one place. And if you wish to go anywhere, you must run twice as fast as that. Do you ever feel like that, that you do all these things and everything's going well and you got everything fixed, everything is in place, and then something breaks and you've got to go back and fix that and just to get back where you were before that thing broke and life goes on? Some have tried to apply this principle of running in place or spinning our wheels or having to work twice as hard just to get anywhere to some kind of evolutionary hypothesis with the various species and their fight for survival, and I don't buy all of that, but there is something to this business of having to keep on trying hard just to, just to stay where you are. It works, this Red Queen curse or principle works with arms races, with nations. You build your armaments to defend yourself against some bloodthirsty tyrant or dictatorship or, or something, and you build these weapon systems, and then they see that and say, well, wait a minute, you've got the advantage, you may come after us. So they build weapons to try to keep up, and the arms race just continues. It's like there's no human way around this kind of thinking. And sometimes in our lives we feel like we're spinning our wheels. I remember a little boy was in the snow and ice and he was late for school. And the teacher said, Johnny, said, how come you're late? And he said, well, it's, it's slick outside. And said, every time I'd take one step toward the school, I'd slide two steps back. And she raised her eyebrows at him and he said, so then I just turned around and headed home and here I am. And sometimes life seems like no matter how hard we try, even in the church, it's like we work and work and work just to hang on and keep the doors open and, and that sort of feeling. But sometimes God's people find it in a, in a worse sense than that. And here we read in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, weeping over the sins of Israel and the sins of Judah and the punishment that God was going to allow to come upon them because of their wickedness and their shameful behavior and their idolatry and, and all of that. And so Jeremiah cries out, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Now get the context here. All you people who come to church are coming with some baggage in your hearts, in your conscience, in your minds, in your attitudes, and in your lifestyle. And I'm taking notice of it, God says. So you come here to church, you come to these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you live in this place. Then in verse 24 he says, Yet they did not obey nor incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and they went backward and not forward. When we follow our own advice, when we follow the, the wisdom of men, when we follow our own cleverly devised methodology, we may find it's true what the Bible says, that it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And that the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we have to guard the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. But these people were actually going backwards because in one case, like some of the exiles that the people that God's people conquered and brought into their, their midst brought their own idols, they also served Jehovah, but they also served their own idols as well. And that double-mindedness got them in trouble and got the Israelites in trouble. And so they were actually walking backwards when they did that. And so in this context, Jeremiah says, Now God is going to send the Chaldeans to come and punish you for your wickedness. And they're not just going to whip you a hundred to nothing in the first quarter. They're going to dig up the bones of the kings. They're going to dig up your grandpa and your grandma and your parents. And they're going to throw those bones out on the ground and let birds land on them. And let them be a dung heap and a shame. That's how bad it's going to be. They're not just going to come and take over. They're going to just mess up the whole grave system and everything. Even the birds, the stork of the heavens, knows her ways and knows God's law. But you, my people, you forgot. You're not doing what you should. You're going to run out of grapes. You're going to run out of figs. It's going to be a dismal harvest. 
And he says, harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. And then he cries out, is there no bomb in Gilead? And here's the passage in uh, chapter 8, verse 19, beginning. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images and their foreign idols? Harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? This is a grim picture saying, well, the seasons are changing. We've been out in the field. We've, we've brought in the harvest. Summer is over with. Winter's on its way. And look at the shape we're in. We're still not saved. And the Chaldeans are still coming. Sometimes in our own lives, we are shaken to a reality check to just take an inventory of where we are, what we've been doing, how we're faring right now in life, and are we ready for winter? Are we ready for the judgment day? Are we ready for the enemy? So the passage here in verse 20 says, Harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. When we think about this harvest, and we look around here in Arkansas at this time of the year, and we see the fields, and we see those that got flooded out, and there was no crops, uh, or those that failed now because there's no rain, and the ones that flourish. And we understand that harvest suggests the passing of a season, ending one and starting another. But in the old days, when people had to live off the land, harvest represented the time of we're going to get the fruits of our labors. We're going to bring in something. We're going to can these green beans and can this okra for the winter. We're going to lay by these things that we need and subsist. And so it won't be like it is in California when the power goes off. You can't do anything. You can't get to the gas station. You get there, you can't get gas because there's no electricity. Cause, and it's just one thing after another, and you're just stuck. But in those days, you plant your seed, and you come and you harvest. You take care of the soil. You take care of the plants. And then you come in, put in the sickle, and you bring out your harvest. And then you subside or subsist for the wintertime. But harvest suggests a time of reaping. And as we read a moment ago in Galatians 6 and verse 7, there is a law of the harvest. And so it is so important that Paul, writing to the letter, the letter to the Galatians, says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. He's got, he's got laws in place. He's got the laws of the universe. Uh, that's why we have a bumper sticker that says, obey gravity. It's the law. And so there are things out there like the law of the harvest that says you're going to reap what you sow, you're going to reap later than you sow, and you're going to reap more than you sow. Nowadays, we talk in terms of karma. We hope, we, hope that guy gets what, what's coming to him. You know, like the guy that worms in on traffic. Traffic is two or three lanes stopped, bumper to bumper, creeping along, and some knucklehead goes on the right side on the, on the shoulder and is wiggling his way in and out. And you're like, I hope he comes to a bridge and gets stuck over there and nobody will let him in. You know, we think about karma getting what's coming to you. And in a general sense, that's what this, this passage says, that, that you're going to reap what you sow. Sometimes it doesn't seem like that's happening. We can act up and we see somebody else act up and nothing happens to them. They seem like they got away with it. And so when the prophet said to Jezebel, where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they're going to lick up your blood, it didn't happen for 20 years. Then it happened after 20 years, but it still came true. And when the prophecy about the city of Tyre was made that you're going to be a wasteland and all you're going to be is a rock for fishermen to, to dry their nets on, it didn't happen for like 200 years. But then it happened just like God says. And when God says the things that you sow in your life, the influence you have, the attitude, the actions, the words, all these things have an effect on people around you. And they'll all come back to you someday. And these things will. It'll be what you sow, more than you sow, and later than you sow. And sometimes we end up praying for a crop failure after we've sown our wild oats. 
Sometimes the harvest may be kind of grim, and it's because we didn't prepare the soil. Sometimes in the church, we want to just go out into the field with a combine immediately and harvest without considering we've got to prepare the soil to receive the seed. Remember the parable of the sower? Some of it fell on rocky ground, and some of it on hard soil, and the birds took it away and all that. And some of it, about one-fourth of the effort, the seed fell on honest and good soil or honest and good hearts. And then there was this, this harvest that came from that. Think about the things that you do, the things that seem so irrelevant and so mundane as preparing the soil. And when you speak a good, positive word, an encouraging word to somebody at work or somebody in your family, your grandchildren, your children, your husband, wife, the good things, the the happy thoughts, the, the good seeds that you sow will fall on an honest and good heart. And when you prepare that soil, when you attend the funeral of a friend, their loved one died. When you go to the hospital, when you do these little things, sending a card, calling someone, sending a text, an email, just being nice, just being helpful. All these things have a way of becoming something that prepares the soil and scratches the surface and digs it up so that when the truth comes around, for whatever reason and whenever it comes, it falls into a soil that's been prepared. Or perhaps as we think about the harvest we're about to to glean someday, if we've been sowing the wrong seeds, we may find ourselves reaping a bitter harvest. In fact, God even used that example, that illustration with His own people. He said, I planted you a choice vine, a choice vineyard. How did I get sour grapes out of this? Sometimes when our reality check, we go, how did I get where I am today? How How can these things be befalling me? Perhaps it's because of the seed we've been sowing. Or maybe we're sowing not enough seed. Uh, God supplies the seed for the sower. He gives us His eternal truth, the sword of the Spirit, the, the living Word to spread and to share with others. And maybe we're holding it back. And the Bible teaches that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And so we get into the context of church growth or, or family dynamics or whatever it might be. And perhaps we need to look at how many happy tracks we're leaving, how much seed we're sowing that's the good seed. Or maybe... We did everything right, except we lost our focus. And we're spinning our wheels or walking backwards because of the cares of this life. And this is one of the sneakiest things that that Satan has to, to, to destroy the Christian's life. Is to get our attention on the things needful for the body, the things of this world, that choke out the Word of God. And you don't have to go out and just do something heinously awful to just go and do some mean thing and be a sinner, a sinner on purpose and just mess up everything. All you've got to do is quit feeding on the living Word. All you have to do is get your eyes on the storm and the wind and the waves and our strength is gone. And we find ourselves in the very day of visitation needing some help, but we're so distant from God. We've not been fellowshipping Him. We've been bringing our idols alongside of us. So that God is no longer number one. God says, I see that. I'm paying attention to that. You get over to the book of Malachi and God is so mad as it were. He says, I wish you'd just stay home and not come to church. To those people who were so idolatrous and mixing in their, their Ashtaroth and uh, the other forms of the, the graven images. Trying to do that alongside of God. Thinking, well, we got it covered. We, we did what God wants. We worshipped Him. But now we'll do this other stuff too out here Monday through Saturday. And... It chokes out the word and the crop fails. Or perhaps when the crop comes in, it's 30, 60, or 100 fold. And sometimes we never can count this. As we have the phrase, eternity will tell. Don't let that 
make you weary in your well-doing. Because when we sow these seeds, we may not get to, to harvest them ourselves. And sometimes when you get near the end of life, looking back, when you've got less time left than you had to start with, you start thinking about, well, I mean, it, it breaks my heart almost to plant a tree. If I mean... Why? Well, I won't get to watch it grow, will I? How long? I mean, will I be here long enough to see it bear fruit or something? And so we may not see the harvest ourselves, but the good that we do, the seeds that we sow, the influence we spread out, it may come back to us while we're still alive or eternity may tell of the good that's done. Harvest also suggests the time of death. We look around and we see the brown plants, the, the green plants are gone basically, and, and there's just this whole brown aura of everything's gone to sleep or it's dead or it's just not here until next year and this harvest that's coming it's like death in a way because there's this great day coming that the Bible teaches Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica that Jesus is coming someday with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on the unrighteous and the ungodly and those that know not God there is a great day coming it's like the harvest of the angels harvesting souls at that time. But we prepare for that, and we think about death. We don't know when our time is coming. We know that death is an enemy, and it's the last enemy that will be destroyed. But listen to these phrases. It's described in the Old Testament as going the way of all the earth. Everybody else has to do it. And in that sense, it feels good to know that we're not alone, even though we don't really like the thought of it. Grandpa did it. Grandma did it. You know, we think it's common to man. We go the way of all the earth. Or perhaps uh, water spilt on the ground. Our whole life can be summed up. I mean, everything you've ever done got you to here this morning. It's all already been done. And so uh, looking at our life like that, it's like you spill a glass of water and it soaks into the ground and then it dries up. And it's like, well, I don't even know if that was ever even here. And it's like that with our entire life. Or it's like a flower or like a shadow. It's here for a few minutes and then it's gone. Or it's like folding up a shepherd's tent when we pack up and our undying soul or spirit leaves to meet the Father. Or it's like a cutting off by a weaver, cutting a thread. Just snip. It's all, it's all done. Or it's like breaking the silver cord, Ecclesiastes says. The New Testament descriptions describe it as a sleep. And when somebody's in a casket or on a couch or in a bed laying there, it looks like they're asleep even though they may be dead. If they're torn apart on the battlefield or blown up in a factory fire or something, and that doesn't look like sleep. But that's a euphemism. It looks like sleep. It's like resting from our labors. It's like a rider in Revelation, a rider on the pale horse. Or it's like resting from our labors, being done with all that we've done, and now we're laid to rest. Harvest suggests not only a time of, of uh, gathering in crops and, and reaping, it suggests a time of death, but it also suggests a time of judgment. And so to the people, Jeremiah says, Babylon is like a threshing floor when it is trodden. Soon, very soon, harvest will come. And this word picture is given again. It's, it's almost like, and God did this through the minor prophets. He would say, I'm going to take the Chaldeans, these wicked Chaldeans, and I'm going to whip you with them. But then I'm going to whip them too. I'm going to use this stick to whip you, and then I'm going to break the stick. And so the Chaldeans are going to get what they need, the Assyrians will, and, and all these things. And so when, when these people said, or when Jeremiah says, harvest is past, summer is ended, and we're not saved, he's talking about the time is up, judgment is on its way, God is going to finally have his day of reckoning. 
And that's good news for those of us who are trying to live right and be Christians and we see the evil that's in the world and we see the, the terrible dictators and the terrible warmongers and all these things and the, the hands that shed innocent blood. And we said, go get them. Let's have a judgment here. But for the rest of us, those who are washed in the blood, we see the judgment coming. We see a friend in Jesus coming. In Hebrews 9 and verse 27, the Bible said, Is it appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment? doesn't mean in the next five seconds is the judgment, but that after you die, that's what's left, the unfinished business of the judgment. Paul was in prison, suffering, alone, receiving Scripture in some cases. But as he writes to Timothy one time, he says, I I want you to come to me and visit me. Uh, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He lost his focus and the the thorns choked out the word and he's gone. And I, I want the cloak that I left at Troas. And I want the books and the parchments, but especially the parchments. That would be his copy of the scriptures. And here he is writing scripture, but he knows there's power in the word. So as he thinks about this, and as he hopes Timothy will come, he says, Do thy diligence to come before winter. He knew that it would be cold and he wanted his cloak. He knew that he needed to refresh in the Scriptures and read the Old Testament and his, his copy of the Scriptures. And he knew he needed a friend. But he knew if it didn't happen before winter, it probably wouldn't happen. Sometimes when we're at the crossroads of decision, if we put it off, It's easier to put it off the next time and the next time until we just never really do get around to it. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus said it's really, really difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven. In fact, it's it's actually easier, you might think, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man who's trusting in his riches to enter into heaven. And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said with... Man, it's impossible. Things that are impossible with man are not impossible with God. All things are possible with God. And the whole idea here is the the freedom of human choice. That when a person sees that there is an all-seeing eye, that God is watching, that there is a judgment day coming, that in our lives maybe a harvest is past, maybe summer is ending, and we need to make some decisions before winter and get things right. In the case of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 22, when he was blinded and had met with Jesus and Jesus talked to him and all that, Ananias told him, you need to arise and be baptized. And this was an answer to the question of what would you have me to do? What am I supposed to do? And it's interesting in the Scriptures, the pattern is that they had an answer. These evangelists and preachers and Bible teachers and, and all the ones handling the Word of God didn't say to them, I don't know, let's talk about this. Let's, let's, what's your opinion on this and, and all that? but rather they were given a sure word from God. And he said, you need to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And that's what Saul did. And he was made free from sin when he obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. And so that's what we look forward to in our exposure to the Scriptures and in the power of the Word is to prepare ourselves for the great day that's coming. And as we look at our own selves, we kind of analyze where we are. And it may be that as you look around yourself right now and that's the fifth point on the compass by the way when you have a compass it may point to magnetic north or maybe you figure out how to make it point to true north somehow and that don't tell you where home is unless you took a reading there and so the first reading you take on a compass is where you are right now and then you figure wherever you go how to get back to where you want to go and we look around and say where are you right now and it may be that as you look at your own heart 
As the Bible teaches, no man knows the thoughts of a man save the spirit of a man that is in him. And I would venture to say that it is common to man that you have things in your heart that nobody knows about but you and God the Father. And in that case, there may be things you need to make right with God that you handle in prayer and you handle in private because it doesn't involve anybody else but your own heart and the Lord God. But it may be that there are things in your life that have hurt other people or hurt the church. Or maybe you need prayers for strength and encouragement and restoration for your first love. There's nothing that saves us from our sins but the blood of Christ. And once we're washed in the blood and saved and our sins are blotted out, nailed to the cross, remembered against us no more, and thrown out into the depths of the sea, separated from us, then when we sin, we ask for forgiveness and we pray to God and God hears our prayer. As we think about that this morning, if you need to put on the Lord in baptism, think about how that nothing but the blood of Jesus can save you from your sins and make you ready for the ultimate harvest in the last day. We're going to stand now and sing this song. And if you need to come to the Lord, would you come as we stand and as we sing together? Would you 